0: Usually, what we do is we start off with a series at the beginning of every month, but today we're not going to do that. We have a vision for this year called Gather, Grow, and Go. We've already done a whole series on gathering, we've done a whole series on growing, and so we should be doing a series on going, and we will do that this month. Except today, I want to talk about the four ways that we give. The reason why we're doing that is because every year we usually do a teaching on giving so that we as Christians can understand how to give. Giving is something that is so important in our Christian walk. If you call yourself a Christian, then you should be a generous giver. If anything, I believe that Christians should be known as the best givers in society. Why? Because we represent a very generous God, is that right? We're the representatives of a very generous God. If you were going to be known as someone in particular, surely you'd want to be known as someone who is very generous. The people that I want to be like in life are generous givers. I just think recently of someone who died, who's an absolute giant of the faith, who's Billy Graham. I think everyone has heard of Billy Graham. Was he not a giant of the faith? Was he not one of the most generous people that you know? If I want to be about someone, I want to be like someone, I want to be like someone who is generous like Billy Graham. I want to be like someone like Martin Luther King who was generous, who gave his life for the fight of justice, for equality of all persons in our culture. And he literally gave his life up because he was shot to death because of it. He was a generous giver. He gave his entire life. I think of someone like Mother Teresa, who went to the other side of the world, who uh, 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 went to the other side of the world to give herself to the down and outs, to the, the worst of the worst in society in India, who were neglected, who were thrown aside, and she spent her entire life giving herself to helping other people. That's the type of person that I want to be like. And so, what I want to do is I want to look at Scripture and find out what are the ways that we as Christians are meant to give. And there are four ways that we are meant to give, and there's three questions I want to ask. I want to ask the first question, the obvious question, which is, what is this giving? What is it about? Explain to me what this giving is all about. The second question I want to ask is, why should I give? Do I have to give this? Why should I give? What's my motivation? And the third question I want to ask is, what's the benefit from this? What's the benefit to me? What's the benefit from others? Because giving always comes with some sort of benefit. So we're gonna look at these four different ways of giving. And the first one is, of course, the one that we probably all know best and we've all heard a lot in different churches, and it is called tithing, tithe. Now in Malachi chapter three, verses 10 to 12, is probably the most famous scripture on tithing. And it says this, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, Tithe, if you're a new Christian or you've never heard of this before, tithe is basically just another word for tenth. It means 10%. It's an old-fashioned word, but it's an old-fashioned word we use to describe giving a 10% to the house of the Lord, to the kingdom of God. 10% is exactly what it is. So if you have an income, then I have an income, and I always calculate the first 10% of my income, and I give that towards the church. Now, what is my motivation for this? Why should I give this? Most people believe that the motivation, if you look at the scripture, most people believe the motivation is that you would actually get blessed and all the nations will call you blessed. Uh, There will not be room enough to store it. I don't believe that should be the motivation for tithing. Here's the motivation for tithing. I believe it's obedience. Obedience is the motivation. That's the reason why I should give tithe. Why? Because in Malachi 3.10, it begins with one word, which is bring. Bring. It's a commanding word, bring it in. This is only one scripture we're looking at, but there are multiple scriptures in the Old Testament where it talks about where it was expected that people were meant to give a tithe to the temple. I believe as Christians, we follow the same principle as well of giving too. Now, some Christians or some churches will actually say, well, no, that's Old Testament, that's old style. We're not necessarily obligated to have to do that anymore. If anything, it should be about generosity. It shouldn't just be about giving a tithe. And I I understand that concept because tithing is talked about more in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament, except Jesus brings it up himself. And he says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Okay, that's a description of the most religious people that were living in that time. He says, you give a tenth, which is a tithe, a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, which are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You should have practiced the latter Without neglecting the former. He's basically saying you should practice the spirit of generosity without neglecting the former of the, of the process of how God has designed you, or God has taught the nation Israel to actually give to the temple. So I believe that they're both meant to exist. Jesus didn't come along and do away with this. I believe that they're actually meant to both exist in our hearts. It's not an either or, I believe it's both. When I was 18 years old, I remember uh, leaving school, high school, right? Is there anyone here who actually enjoyed high school? Was there anyone? One, two, three, four, five, six. So that's either because you were the cool kids or you were the ones that were beating up all the other kids, right? I didn't like school, right? Because I was the one getting beaten up and I wasn't the cool kid. I was the ugly kid at school, right? Hasn't changed much, right? So, so I remember leaving school. I remember the day. I remember the joy that I felt when I left school. And getting out of the, those gates and walking away, just going, "I'll never go back to that God-forsaken place ever again." And, and I remember going up the, the hill, West Grove Avenue, where my parents live, and I'm driving up West Grove I'm driving, not driving. I'm walking up to West Grove Avenue and I get home, my mother's there with her friend and they're having uh, lunch together, and I came in and I went, "I'm done with that place!" And I felt the joy just like overflowing. I felt it like a percolating coffee grinder, right? I just felt the joy of leaving school. And then I I, I just thought, and then the next day when I got up, I could feel this joy that I could get up at any time I wanted. I didn't need to get up at a specific time to go to school. I was free, free, free at last. Does anyone remember that joy, right? You remember that? And I came downstairs, you know, getting up in the morning, going for my breakfast, and, and, and I was going past my mother's room, and all I hear was, Peter. And she's at her bureau on her desk, and she's making lists like she always used to do every day, making a list, and I said, yep. And I thought she'd maybe want me to make her a cup of coffee, and she said, um, I want you to go get a job. Uh, you're paying rent, right? <laughs> what just happened? Yesterday was freedom. Yesterday, I was emancipated from school. I was free to live the life that I wanted to live. I've been waiting for this for 18 years, and suddenly she catapults me into adulthood. She puts me into the place where I now have to get a job and start paying rent. Who agrees with that? You're no friend of mine. (laughs) I had to go start paying rent. I had to go get a job. That's expected of people who are adults. Now, in our culture, it's not expected that children should actually have to pay rent. Am I right? Your children are at school. Unless there's anyone here that's got children that are working right now and they're paying rent. How awesome is that, right? But but it's it, children are not expected. In fact, it's against the law to force children to have to work and have to make money in order to pay for your bills. That's not uh, that's not legal in our country. In our country, children are meant to be about the education, about learning. But as soon as they become adults, they're expected to have to be a producer in the household. They're expected to have to give into the household, and that anyone who takes from the household without giving back to it is a user of the household. Eventually, you should or will get kicked out from that household. If it's true in your household, then how much should that be true for the kingdom of God too? You see, You have to ask yourself this question. If you have not embraced the command of tithing according to what the Old Testament says and according to how Jesus still supports it, then you have to ask yourself this question How long will you stay as a child? You see, spiritually, we're meant to grow up into maturity and start adding back to the kingdom of God, to the local body, to the church. It's something that was expected of us that we're meant to be a, a contributing member to the local body. This is something that I believe is expected of us. All right, so if that's what tithing is and that's what I'm motivated by, then let me ask this question. What is the result from tithing? Well, it says in Malachi 3, 10, 11, you see, it says, "'And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and will prevent pests from devouring your crops.'" I firmly believe that that we are afforded blessing from God. We're afforded not just supernatural blessing, but just normal blessing that comes from the order that God has put into our culture of how we should be, of how God has designed of how we should be blessed, right? If you work for something, you get paid. That's a blessing. It's not something you're just owed, but it's also a blessing. God has probably given you a lot of stuff in your life and I want you to consider what has he given into your life that you're not necessarily looking at as a blessing in your life. Recently I was speaking to Jack Norris who was in our group and uh, we've got a men's group on on a Wednesday night We meet together at seven o'clock and we just talk about the word of God. And he said he was looking at the things that God had given him. He was dreaming about greater things. And he said, someday God, I want to be able to have a, you know, I want to be able to have a house on a lake. I want to be able to do this. I want to be able to do that. And he looked at the stuff that God had given him and he felt God told him this. He said, then look after the stuff that you already have. And the word that he felt that he got from God was this, that neglect is wrought to the blessing. So Jesus said, Don't neglect the former. Don't neglect the latter. Both of them must come together. If you don't look after and follow the process of God, follow the ways of God, then we get to the place where we are neglecting the stuff that God has already given us. I believe that we're here to look after the things that have given us and, and God has given us. In order to look after the things that God has given us, we have to put our wealth to it. We've got to put our tithe to it. If you don't look after your house and put your money into your house, your house will eventually fall apart. This is why I believe that God has put tithing into our, uh, into our body, into the ways of how we should live together in the kingdom of God. Number two, the second thing, That I believe is the the way of giving in the uh, in the Bible is this. Number two, first fruits. First fruits. Proverbs three verses nine to ten. Nine and ten says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. What are first fruits? Well, first fruits is basically a system or a process in the Old Testament where it was applied to things that couldn't be measured by 10%, right? When you get a paycheck, you can measure 10%. But first fruits is basically when the harvest started to, to, to pop up, what you do is you go into the fields and let's say you own grapes, right? And you start picking the grapes off. On the first gathering in of grapes, the first basket of grapes, you take your first basket and you offer it to God as a thanks to him for the blessing that he is now giving you. But the, way, the reason why it's not a 10% is because the grapes can keep growing and growing and growing and growing and growing, and you can't measure that. There's a way that you're able to give out of the things that are not measurable, and one of the things that we used to do is, uh, my my, uh, uh, my mother and father, of course, were pastors, but we used to have small businesses on the side, and we used to, my mother and I used to run a, a, a sunbed business, a, a tanning bed business. Do I look like I was a tanning bed type of guy, right? No, I can tell that, right? And we used to own a tanning bed business, and, uh, and it was a portable tanning bed, but so I had the little van, I had the, the, the sunbeds, and i put them in the back, and I'd drive them around to people's houses, and I'd set it up over their bed, and I'd show them a little timer on it and stuff like that, and then they would lie underneath these little goggles and get tan. They always wanted a tan just before they're about to go on holiday, a vacation, like in the summer. So we would always start around about springtime, we start advertising, and so we'd we'd fire up the the adverts in the newspaper, And, and we always agreed that the first amount of money that came in at the weekend, we'll take that whole amount and give it to the Lord's service, and so we take that whole amount of that weekend, and we would pick a missionary, and we would commit that amount of money into the service of God. That's a, a demonstration or a, an example of a first fruit way of living. For me, what we do is we actually, you know, we usually will give a first fruit from our business of the, the beginning of the year, the first job that comes in, we'll, we'll give that away. What's my motivation on this? So why, why would I want to give first fruits? Well, in Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10, it says, honor the Lord with With your wealth. The word honor basically just means thank you, right? Just thank you. You don't necessarily have to give this. I don't see anything in the scripture that says that you're obligated to do this out of obedience like tithing is. This is simply just a way of saying a special thank you to God. Uh, I see I see uh, that Jesus is actually, his death and his resurrection was actually called a first fruit as well. In Deuteronomy 21, 23 and Galatians 3, 13, it talks about that he was a first fruit for us. What does that mean? It basically means that he was basically saying to God, God, I want to support what your vision and what your goal is. I want to glorify you. When you say thank you to God, you're, you're glorifying him and you're, th- and, you're, and you're supporting whatever the thing is that he wants to achieve. And what the father wanted to achieve was to win us back to him. And so Jesus' death was like a first fruit. He was adding to the service of God. He was not obligated to do this. This wasn't a command that Jesus had to die. It was a choice that he gave himself. Now, if he hadn't given himself, it wouldn't have been an insult to God. It wouldn't have made things any worse for God. But he wanted to be a part of the things of God. And that's why I believe that first fruits is a fascinating order of giving as well. What would be the result of this? Why would I want to give a first fruit? The first fruit is in Proverbs 3.10. It says, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. I believe what it does is it brings us favor and it brings us overflow. Now, now the, the funny thing is, overflow can often, this is, a, this is an interesting thought for me lately. I've often thought that having too much stuff is a bad thing, right? I, I, think, I, I think that if you've got too much stuff, If I think if you have too much stuff and it's becoming neglected and useful, then you should just give it away and move on, right? But I often thought that having too much stuff is a bad thing, but it's not a bad thing because it says that he will overflow. Overflow means you've got more than you actually need, right? But that puts you in the position for the next type of giving that we're about to look at, where you can actually give away to the poor as well. Now, what I did is, uh, uh, last year, I was studying this and And I woke up in the middle of the night, and again, it's like three o'clock in the morning, and uh, I was just wide awake, and, and and I felt God urging me in my heart. He said, I want you to look at your own overflow. I want you to start counting all the stuff that you've got. And so I got up in the middle of the night and I got my little, I got my smartphone and I started counting how many rugs we've got. I started counting how many chairs we've got, how many pots and pans, how many scented candles that we have, which is just too much. We couldn't keep up with them, right? And, and I started counting all the stuff that we had and I got tired, I got to five o'clock in the morning. This is two hours of counting stuff. And I got to five o'clock in the morning and I still couldn't calculate all the things that we had. I didn't even count how many shirts or pants or shoes or, or fancy socks that I have, right? I didn't, I didn't count how many ties. I didn't count the kids' clothes or my wife's clothes. I didn't even get into the garage and start counting how many screws. And, and I got to the point where I realized, okay, God, I get your point. My life is overflowing, And I have to admit that if I can't count all my stuff in the middle of the night, then I've got more stuff than I can handle. I've got more stuff than I can imagine. I am overflowing. Just this weekend, I started thinking about that, about counting all my stuff a year ago, and I realized that, whoa, God, you have multiplied the amount of stuff. I could could start listing and counting all the new stuff that I have been given this year. Now, again, I'm not into trying to preach a health and wealth gospel of if you come and follow Jesus, you'll have so much stuff, and you'll just feel awesome, and you'll have the biggest mansions in the world. That's not the point. The point is overflowing for the kingdom of God, and I know that if he says that if you honor the Lord, that he will overflow, he will overflow in your life. If you're feeling lack in your life, don't ask God to give to you. Follow his order of generosity. Follow his order that brings about the overflow in your life. You follow me so far? There are many ways that you can actually give first fruits. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that is just money. It could be that you give away the first part of your day. It could be that you give away the first part of your business. It could be you give away the first part of your prayers. The first part of your day is when you're saying, I'm gonna take the best part of my day, God, and I'm gonna give it to you first. That's my first fruit. I've been given a new day that I don't deserve, so I'm gonna give the first hour to you, the first 10 minutes to you. Whatever it is, you're honoring God Because you know fine well he's about to bless you. You know fine well he has given you more than you deserve. I love this principle. I love finding ways of trying to give first fruits to God. Okay, let's go to number three. Number three. Can anyone say alms? That's right, perfect, thank you. Because I think in American you say alms, is that right? Alms, okay. It's an old-fashioned word, and I like old-fashioned words. an old-fashioned word for charity. And in Matthew 6, 1-4, it says this. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, we're looking at this, and, and it, you don't actually see the word ams in there, but it's an old-fashioned word. If you go into King James, it uses the word arms. And arms is basically a, just a giving, to the, a giving charity to people who are in need. In fact, there was, a, there was a, several ways that they used to do this, and one of the ways they used to do it was the, uh, sometimes in the, old, the, uh, in the Old Testament, they would carry a little pouch, and they would have a few coins that would just be for giving to the poor, and it would only be for that. And the reason why I believe they would separate that money apart from the rest of their money was to do two things. It was to to make sure that they had something to give to other people, but it was also to make sure that they didn't give the money that was to support your family away to needy people, right? Because if you give all your belongings and all your your money away, which sometimes people believe they should do, what you can do is put your own children into, into poverty, We're not, God's not trying to get you to give and make your own children suffer just so that someone else's uh, pains can be eased. And so they came up with a way of saying, well, we'll have a little satchel, a little uh, purse that would be on your tunic, and that that alone would be just for giving to the poor. Now, why would I do this? It's not for self-benefit. It's not for uh, personal blessing. It's simply for this. It's for compassion. And I believe that compassion is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's something that is to be that, that, that should fill up Christians, where you should look at someone else and feel their pain. Now, alms or charities, there's an interesting story about this in Ruth, and many of you know the story of Ruth. Ruth was basically a Moabite, and she married into a family that was a Jewish family, and her husband had died, and her mother-in-law's husband had died as well, her father-in-law, and they were both left desolate and poor. So her mother said, well, let's go back to Israel because at least we've got some family there that might be able to help us. And so she said, well, why don't you just stay here because this is your own country and I'll go back to my own country. And Ruth said, no, 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 I'm gonna stay with you because God's blessing is with you. So she followed her all the way back home. And and, and, And what would happen is in those days when you had nothing and you were poor, you had to be dependent on, uh, on, on other people in order for charity. You had to be dependent on other people to help give you help when they were doing it. Now, the amazing thing is Jesus said this, that, that, that if we're moved by compassion, there's a reason why he wants us to do it in secret. And I believe it's because of this. I believe it's because it's to protect our dignity. Now, when, 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 uh, uh, when uh, Ruth was actually going into trying to find food that, you know, because she was so poor, what they used to do is they would go to the fields and they would wait till the, the farmers were harvesting all their stuff and they would walk along the edge of the field just picking up whatever was left over. But there was an old system in the Old Testament that was called not cutting corners or not cutting into corners, Right? Now, what we have done is we've translated that saying into don't cut corners. Don't cut corners basically means don't uh, take a shortcut on the things that you're doing. But that phrase actually comes from an Old Testament phrase which came from don't cut into corners. Now, I've got an aerial view of a field right here. And you can see how the fields are square. But this tractor, of course, can only go in a curve and an arc like that, and of course in the Old Testament, they didn't necessarily have tractors to do this, but they purposely used to take the corners of the field and leave them for the poor people. God had set up a system in the Old Testament where He was able to take the wealth that He had given us, and He gave us a command or a direction of how we could help poor people and protect their dignity. Jesus said, do these things and not your, your, so your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. That doesn't mean don't tell your wife, right? It doesn't mean don't tell your husband. It basically means do it in such a way where you're giving to the poor, but you don't necessarily have to make them look like that they are poor. You don't necessarily have to make them look like that they are helpless people, they can help themselves. They can, they can go and do the work and gather in their own seed. They can gather in. They need to do some work. When you just give money directly to someone without expecting them to do work, you're putting them in the position of saying, we gather it all in and we're giving it to you. No, I think we should come up with ways of saying, listen, we want to help you. We've left that work over there for you to do and you can go and gather your own stuff. Does that make sense? It gives dignity to people, because I believe that dignity comes from work. It comes from being able to do the things of God in the way that he has designed, and that is to do the work ourselves, to bring it in for ourselves. Okay, what would the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, right there is when Matthew 6, 3, um, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that you uh, are giving may be in secret. Okay, what would be the benefit to this? The benefit is reward in heaven and reimbursement as well. Matthew six, four says, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Proverbs nineteen seventeen, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. uh, lending to the Lord. I've never imagined that we would lend to the Lord, but it says that we do actually lend to the Lord. And it says that we'll we'll get a reward when we are in heaven. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean to be something that you have to give as money. It could be that you give mentoring, to people who are in need. It could be that you give fathering or mothering to people that are in need. It could be that you give education to people who are in need. Alms or charitable giving can be given in so many different ways. Here's the last one. We're on the last one right now. Number four. The last one is a story, uh, is a principle of seed sowing. And it's a story that Jesus told In Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20, this is the type of giving that I believe is very easily confused in churches because it's one of the most common stories that are told in churches in order to get people to give to the church, but it's not about that. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed, Jesus said. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came out, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear again. Grain, sorry. Still, other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some a 100 times. Now, what is this all about? Well, giving seeds, I believe, is all about souls. So therefore, souls is our motivation. Why? Because later on, the disciples came to Jesus and said, great story, but what did it mean? And Jesus said, it means this, the seed is the word of God. And whenever it gets planted in a person, and a person has a hard heart, that word is not going to do any good. So you can, you, can, you can quote as much scripture as you want to your children, but if they've got a hard heart, it's falling on ground that is just gonna die. It's gonna, the seed will die. Doesn't mean you shouldn't sow, it just means that that's what happens on hard ground. But if you put it on fruitful soil and you put the word of God on a fruitful soil, then we know that it will actually bring a harvest, but a harvest for the salvation of our souls. Now, I'm, I'm, the reason why I'm saying that this is an important point is because I believe that many pastors use the Scripture in order to try and convince people that they should put money into this ministry because you're going to get blessed, you're going to get multiplied, and God is going to bless your, all the money you give to the church. He's going to multiply it 100 times, and it says it in the Scripture there. You're going to get 100 times more money back. No, it doesn't say that here. It says that you'll get souls back. You'll get salvations back. This is what this scripture is saying. 30, 60, 100 times full. Now, I believe that this is is what we're doing with our building campaign. I believe that we're taking seed and putting it into a a bank account and saving it up and then trying to figure out what church are we gonna build? What what building are we going to buy? We're doing that for the sake of the harvest of souls. Because let me tell you, if If this is not the time to win people to Christ, I don't know what time is. Because culture is not becoming more Christian. It's not becoming more uh, uh, God followers. If anything, we're now getting to the place where there's more and more tension in our culture. And our job is getting bigger and greater. And we have a job, uh, according to the kingdom of God, to spread the good news, to tell other people about Jesus Christ, which is our next series that we're gonna talk about, which is Go. And I'm excited about next week's teaching. I have uh, I've, I've felt like I've gotten a word from God for, for next week's teaching. And I'm excited about sharing it with you. The farmer sows the word. The farmer sows the word. Recently, I was at a conference where I went to one of the sessions, and, and it was a, a guy who was actually talking about his uh, about his charity called Charity Water, and maybe some of you have heard it before. And I'll be honest, when I went, I just thought Charity Water—that doesn't sound exciting, right? He's going to talk about how they raise money to to you know to to, to give clean water. But he got up and he talked about his testimony and how he was, you know, uh, uh, brought up in a church himself. And then, and then he decided to live his own life when he became a, an 18-year-old and do whatever the heck he wants. He joined a band, moved to New York, and then he became a, club, a nightclub owner. And he said, that he, he said, I was literally paid to make people drunk. <clears throat> I was paid $5,000 a month just by Budweiser to drink Budweiser so that people could see me drinking Budweiser he said, my job was just to make a party every night and make everyone drunk. He said, but in the process, I became a, an alcoholic. I became an, an, an addict to pornography, to drugs, to all these different things. And he, said, and he said, and I got a bunch of my friends, and we went down to Cancun or wherever it was, and we rented this huge house, and we had these big magnums of, of champagne and Don Perignon. And, and he goes, and in the middle of it, I realized I was not living the life that I wanted to live that everything I was doing was useless. I wasn't becoming the person I wanted to be. And he said, I left it in the middle of it. I went back to New York. And he said, and I sold everything I had. He said, I had 2,000 CDs and I put it on eBay and one lot just because that was, you know, that that was the cool thing in those days of CDs. And he said, I just got rid of everything. I sold up everything. And I went to different charities and I said, can I go and serve on one of your fields? And finally went and found this charity that allowed him to go serve in Africa. And when he went and served in Africa, he he realized that one of the worst things that was in Africa was that there was no access to clean water. And so he came back to New York and he came back to America and he said, God, what do I do? How do I help people dig wells? It's going to cost $10,000 to dig a well and I don't know how to do it. And he said, you know what I should do? I should use the gifts and the skills that I've gotten. So he called up his friends and he said, hey, it's my birthday next week. I'm gonna be, be 30 years old. I want you to come to my birthday and I'm gonna throw it at this nightclub and all the money that you put, you come in, I want you to put it into a bucket and I'm gonna dig a well in Africa and said, and everyone went, we're in, right? So they came and they, they all gave him 20 bucks or 30 bucks and, and he took the money at the, the end of that party and, then, and, he, and he found a company in Africa that he could pay, pay them $10,000 to put a well in and he brought clean water to these people. And from this, he got this idea. I bet you I could get other people to give up their birthdays too. And so he started spreading the word to other people, saying, would you give up your birthday in order to help dig a well? And so people started to do this. And he came across this young girl, this little girl that was in a church, and her name was uh, Rachel Beckwith from Seattle, and she was nine years old, and and she started to do this as well, and she said, Mom, I want to tell everyone to give $9, which is my age, so give up your birthday, and and, and whatever your age is, you ask people to to donate that amount of money. So she said, I want to get $300 to donate this, and she only raised $220. $220. She was disappointed, and she told her mom, she said, next year, I'm going to try harder. But the next day she was in a car crash, a 20-pile car crash, and she was the only fatality in the car crash. And the word got out about how she was actually raising money to bring a well to 15 people who had no water. And the word started to spread, and people started to give to her fund, and she got to a place where she raised thousands of dollars. She got to a place where she raised $100,000. And it spread throughout Seattle and people from around the world started donating to this fund and she raised over a million dollars. On her anniversary, the guy who started the charity called up her parents and said, would you come out with me on the death, the one year anniversary of your child's death, would you come with me to Africa to see what has happened and what your daughter has done when she sacrificed her birthday for other people. Do you want to be a generous person or not a generous person? Because there's only two states you can be in, which is a generous person or a not generous person. Not being a generous person is not just because you act selfishly. It can be just because you do nothing. And I want to be known as someone who's a generous person. I want to be a Billy Graham. I want to be a Martin Luther King. I want to be... Mother Teresa. That's what I want to be remembered for. We're Christians, first and foremost. We're sons and daughters of God. We are the hands and the feet of Christ. We are to be generous to each other and to this world. Let us stand. Father, we are inspired by other generous people. We pray that whatever spirit they have got, would come alive inside of us, would spark alive inside of us. That we want a community of generous people here. We want to be known as generous. That we have a tithe out of obedience to you. That we have a thanksgiving, a gift of of first fruits that we give to yourselves. We also want to be known as people who have got alms to give to the poor. We also want to be known as people who know how to sow seed to see other people come to you as well. We want to be completely filled and completely uh, uh, completed in our giving to you. We want to see it all come to pass in our lives. So Father, I pray that you would give us the wisdom and the insight to know how we can give more deeply so that we can sense and know your spirit more deeply so that we can feel you closer to us. Father, we know that you've got wisdom for us. We don't want to neglect our blessing because neglect is wrought to our blessing. We want to see it overflow, to multiply, so that other people will be blessed as well. And we ask that you would give us insight right now as we stand. And just take a few seconds to ask God, how do you want me to bless others?